Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Triscania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 10th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This program won't be the longest in this two Corinthians series. We're going to present chapter 7. The, um... Well, next week, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing on Friday night. There will be a program. However, Melissa and I are riding down to Naples, Florida, to visit a good friend and listener. If there's anybody uh, in between Panama City and Naples, Florida, who would like to have coffee that listens to these programs, feel free to drop me an email at the info mailbox at my website, and we will be glad to do our best to comply. Next Saturday, we will have Brett Light from Australia, from expelltheparasite.com, Yahweh willing. Brett will be an interesting conversation. Tomorrow night, German Origins, part four. I'm afraid to say, I, I hate to say it, but the, um, the Euro program, in part because of our travels, will be postponed until April 26th, when we shall resume it, with, with another um, discussion of the political situation in Europe, and this time especially in the Ukraine. So we look forward to that with Sven Longshanks. We wish, we wish it could be sooner. Tonight, we will present the Epistles of Paul, 2 Corinthians, Part 7, which by chance happens to be with Chapter 7. And it's subtitled, Touch Not the Unclean, because we will, to a great degree, continue the conversation from our presentation of the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where we see in the later portion of that chapter that Paul of Tarsus had warned his readers, as it is transliterated in the Christiania New Testament, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness the law, of course, as we read in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament, was only given to the children of Israel. And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or Belial in some translations? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about. And they shall be, I'm sorry, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince, or the Lord, if you will, and do not be joined to the impure or to the unclean, and I will admit you, and I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, 
says the Almighty Prince. With all certainty, all of these statements, Paul's not changing the subject from verse to verse. All of these statements are interconnected, and all were attended to, intended to add up to a single admonition. Sadly, the meaning, the real meaning of this admonition is lost on nearly all Christians of modern times. Here Paul had quoted from Isaiah chapter 52, and he is warning his readers to come out not from among certain unclean things, but among, from among certain unclean people. The people of come out from among them are the very same thing as the impure or unclean of verse 17 from whom Christians are to come out from among in verse 16. Among whom are also the untrustworthy aliens that Christians should not be joined to in verse 14. The Apostle John was teaching very similarly to this, where he in turn had warned his readers in his second epistle that whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of the Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any of you and brings not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Don't even greet the ungodly. Don't even greet non-Christians. And John was not merely talking of those who profess Jesus or of those who do not profess Jesus. But more specifically, he was talking of those who abide in his doctrine and those who do not abide in his doctrine. And Yahshua Christ had constantly admonished his followers to keep his law. During the course of his ministry, Yahshua Christ had also told those who had opposed him among the Judeans, as it is recorded in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. According to the word of God, on the cross of Christ, only those sheep were cleansed. And according to Scripture, those sheep are only of the children of Israel. At that very same time, Christ had also told his adversaries, But you believe not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. The leaders and rulers and a great number of the people in Judea at that time were not Israelites. They were in large part Edomites and not Israelites at all, as the ancient histories attest. 
Therefore, because Edomites and Israelites could often, because of interracial marriage, marriage between Edomites who had diverged from the Hebrew race when Esau took wives of Canaanites. But by this time, by the first century, they were often indistinguishable because of intermarriage between Edomites and Israelites. Because of that, because they could often not be distinguished otherwise, Christ told us the tree would be known by its fruit. And the apostles took it for granted because of that, that those who had heard and obeyed the gospel of Christ were indeed of his sheep. And those who did not hear and obey were to be accounted among his enemies and turned over to the world so that they may suffer judgment. Of course, the apostles only took the gospel to those nations of the Roman oikumene, the Roman world, where those sheep were located, since the very purpose of the gospel was to reconcile, as we've seen in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. The very purpose of the gospel was to reconcile the lost sheep of Israel to Yahweh their God. However, the apostles of Christ also had an advantage which any evangelists of the true gospel today do not have. That deposit of the Spirit of God, the Pentecost Spirit, by which they were able to perform marvelous deeds. The people of that time accepted the words of the apostles by the testimony which those deeds had provided. And for that reason, they were willing to go to their deaths to defend the veracity of that which they had seen and heard. Those who rejected Christ also rejected his works, and so it was with the apostles who followed after him. Therefore, we can assert with confidence that in Paul's time, the admonition to come out from among them was indeed, even though the races weren't as distinguishable as they often are today, it was nevertheless indeed an admonition relating to the race of those who were listening. For Yahshua's sheep did indeed hear his voice, and they were commanded to come out from among those who did not. The gospel was to separate the wheat from the tares right from the beginning, even if the process was very gradual. Paul had already demonstrated in his first letter to the Corinthians that he was bringing the gospel to people whose ancestors had been in the exodus with Moses. As he had said that explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he also professed that the pagan nations around them were indeed Israel according to the flesh, 
meaning the scattered Israelites of ancient times who had been alienated from God. Therefore, we have seen him explain here, in relation to these very things, that his gospel was a gospel of reconciliation to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul had advised those with husbands or wives who had not yet accepted Christ to remain with them. There in that chapter we read Paul's advice. Now furthermore, I, not the Lord, because there's nothing in Scripture which governs this situation. Paul was giving his own advice from his heart and his experience in the Word of God. Now, furthermore, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she consents to dwell with him, he must not put her away. And any woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to dwell with her, she must not divorce that husband. Think about those words for a minute. If you're a Christian, if you're a real Christian, you seek to keep the law of God. If you have a woman in your house who may not be accepting of the gospel for one reason or another, but she's your wife, if she consents to stay with you, she's going to consent to keep the law of God, or you can't be with her. You can't be with a fornicator. She can't be off doing the neighbors and, and stay with you because you're a Christian. So these spouses consenting to stay with the Christian spouse must consent to keep the law of God. In that manner, Paul goes on to say, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified in the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified in the brother. Otherwise, then, your children are unclean. Why? If your, your husband or wife is a pagan fornicator, they could be having children with anybody in those pagan temples. Well, now they are holy. And they will be raised as Christians within the law of God, even if they're not Christians by label or by the profession of their mouths. Because from a Christian perspective, holiness means that such a husband or wife must nevertheless consent to abide by the law of God, since otherwise the Christian would not be able to remain with a sinner. Therefore, Paul said that with that consent, the children would be sanctified. So therefore... If in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is advising people to remain with their pagan spouses as long as those pagan spouses consent to live in a Christian household. Paul's admonition here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 has nothing to do with quote-unquote religion. And it has everything to do with race and a keeping of the law of God. If someone of the race of Israel professes Jesus but does not keep the law, his 
profession means nothing. As Christ had said, this people honor, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If someone of the lost sheep remains with his race and lives in a manner which is not contrary to the law of God, then that person honors God, whether he professes Jesus or not. And that is what really matters in the end. Today's world is a much more complex world than the world of the apostles. And we see the systemization of deception of which the apostles themselves had warned us. Not simply paganism and Greek, sophistic Greek philosophies all around them, but the Christian gospel turned into paganism and, and sophistry, which is what it is today in most supposedly Christian churches. As Peter had warned in his second epistle in chapter 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, meaning that tomorrow and the next day and the next day, things are going to go on as they are now. These false prophets, false pastors, they don't believe that they're going to be judged for what they're doing. Today we live with Mystery Babylon and the flood from the mouth of the serpent described in Revelation chapters 12 through 18. However, that does not mean that the admonition to come out from among them is left idle. Indeed, the scripture is every bit as valid as it has always been. But while identity Christians understand that the message which they bear is the only valid gospel, and they should understand that, they should nevertheless have forbearance with their brethren who do not yet understand it, so long as those brethren are still willing to follow those laws of God which were written upon the hearts of the children of Israel. On the other hand, identity Christians must treat those who reject Christ and despise his law as tares along with the rest of the enemies of Christ, ostracizing them and praying that they either repent or that God himself may judge them. That is why Paul had said of the fornicator in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that the assembly was to deliver such a one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. While that particular sinner referenced in that passage had evidently repented and was for that reason allowed to remain within the assembly, the model of conduct still remains as an example to Christians today that we reject 
all those who remain in sin, as well as rejecting the enemies of Christ and the non-Israelite races from whom Christians are to separate themselves. Those of our own race who both deny the gospel of Christ and the laws of our God are to be accounted no differently than the traditional enemies of God who were never candidates for Christ in the first place. We must indeed come out from among all of them, distinguishing ourselves with our Christian behavior, as Paul had also explained in Romans, preferring one another without hesitation. Yahshua Christ had also told his apostles, as it is recorded in John chapter 15, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Therefore, symbolically, when Peter didn't want Christ to wash his hands and feet, Christ told Peter to wash his head and his feet. Christ told Peter, John chapter 13, that you'll have no part with me if I do not cleanse you. In other words, those whom Christ did not cleanse on the cross have no part with him. None whatsoever. And those who reject that cleansing have no part with him until they accept that cleansing, which for many of us will probably be far too late in this life. Therefore, Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ had loved the assembly, meaning the children of Israel in the world, and gave himself for it in order that he would consecrate it, cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word, that he may present it to himself in honor, the assembly not having a blemish or wrinkle or any of such things, but that it would be holy and blameless. The children of Israel reconciled to Christ must therefore keep themselves cleansed in like manner, as Paul exhorts here in the opening verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and of spirit, accomplishing sanctity in awe. Papyri 46 has in love, in awe of Yahweh, or in fear of Yahweh. The promises which Paul refers to here, therefore having these promises. Paul is connecting the Old Testament promises directly to the recipients of the New Testament gospel. There's no disconnecting these things. Otherwise, Paul is just talking into the air, talking out of the side of his mouth, talking words he doesn't mean. The Judeo-Christian pastors, they might, so-called pastors, right? The Judeo-Christian deceivers, they might be able to convince you of that. But Paul means what he says. Therefore, having these promises, you won't see these promises anywhere else but for the children of Israel, period. The lost sheep. 
the promises which Paul refers to here are those promises which he repeats at the end of chapter 6 of this epistle, which are found in Scripture in places such as Leviticus chapter 26, Jeremiah chapter 31, and Ezekiel chapter 37. As we had seen when we presented that chapter here a week ago, all of those promises are made specifically for the children of Israel. And all of those promises are also conditional, depending upon Israel's keeping the covenant with Yahweh their God, which he had made with the nation. Although, although Israel was also a recipient of other and earlier promises, which were unconditional, the promises made to Abraham. They are not a point of discussion here. The promises concerning the kingdom of God and his dwelling with the children of Israel, those promises are conditional. Therefore, where Paul also cites Isaiah chapter 52 towards the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he cites it as an example of the conditions which Israel must live up to in order to receive the promises which he mentioned, which concern fellowship with God. The children of Israel could be the recipients of the promise of Abraham concerning being great nations, many nations, having seed which would last and live forever, those promises are unconditional. Here we have conditional promises that the children of Israel must live up to certain conditions in order to have God dwell among them and be their God manifestly here in this life. The children of Israel must live up to these certain conditions if they're going to establish the kingdom of God on earth, separate from the promises to Abraham and his seed. These are over and above that. They don't annul those promises by any means as Paul explains in Galatians. But if we want the kingdom of God on earth, and we want it to be manifest, the children of Israel have to do their part. That's what they failed to do in the old kingdom. So where Paul had stated, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, that just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then where he is stated in 2 Corinthians 6.18, quoting scripture, and I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters. Says the Almighty Prince. Those promises or what Paul refers to here, which are conditional upon the admonition from Isaiah, which Paul cites in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, 
where he said, on which account come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the unclean, and I will admit you. This admonition encapsulates what Israel had agreed to do in Exodus chapter 19, where the word of God says from verse 5, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Yahweh speaking to Moses, which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people. And laid before their faces all these words which Yahweh commanded. And all the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And they didn't. Moses returned the words of the people unto Yahweh. Being a peculiar treasure above all people and a holy nation, the children of Israel were to be separate from all other races and nations, Adamic or not. By necessity, that also means separating themselves from their own brethren who refuse to be separate. If an Israelite is a race mixer or a sodomite, or he is caught up in some idolatry or some other sinful behavior, he must also be treated as one of the unclean. This admonition still stands today, and we see it here in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and also in 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, in Leviticus chapter 26, we read in part from verse 3, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, and then we'll skip ahead to verse 9, I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. And here's the part of the promise Paul is talking about. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you. And I will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's therefore having these promises. That's what Paul's talking about to the Corinthians, not to the Jews. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we read in part, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will, that's the new covenant. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah is for the same houses of Israel and Judah, with which the Old Covenant had been made. 
The new covenant is a matter of God's word of prophecy for Israel alone. This new covenant is also prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 34, speaking again of the children of Israel who were scattered. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and the lean cattle, because you have thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the diseased with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall be no more a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle, sheep and goats. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken it. David is invoked in Ezekiel as a type for Christ. Then, ultimately, we see in Ezekiel chapter 37, in part, from verse 24, And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd, and shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes to do them. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. <laughs> Excuse me. And the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. I don't think Joshua Christ is returning to live with a bunch of Jews. As Job had said in the book of Job, in chapter 14, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Unclean people cannot be cleansed in the blood of Christ, according to the word of God found in Job. The children of Israel were clean by the law. They were profaned in idolatry. Things that are profaned can be cleansed by the law. Things that are unclean in the first place can never be cleansed as Job points out, Job 14.4. Once again, here in the opening verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has displayed his Christian identity worldview. It was only the children of Israel. In each of those promises, they are explicit to the children of Israel every time Yahweh said, I will be their God, and they will be, will be my people, it was accompanied with two other conditions that those people keep the law and that those people are the children of Israel. Paul has again displayed his Christian identity worldview. The 
same children of Israel who were under the old covenant of whom it could be said, therefore having these promises are the children of Israel to whom the new covenant was promised. And no one had those promises except the children of Israel who were under the old covenant. Wherever in the Old Testament Yahweh God had said, I will dwell among them and I will walk about and I will be their God and they will be my people. He was talking explicitly and exclusively of the children of Israel whom he promised to gather long after he had them scattered. Paul brought his gospel to the very nations which were in large part descended from those very same people, which a proper study of ancient history certainly reveals. So Paul's entire worldview, in a lot of little statements throughout his gospel, throughout his epistles, I'm sorry, a lot of those little statements reveal that his entire worldview was Christian identity, the gospel of the reconciliation of the people of Israel to God. Make room for us, verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Make room for us. We have wronged no one. We have ruined no one. We have defrauded no one. It must be kept in mind that Paul is using the plural because he is speaking for Timothy as well, who is mentioned in the opening salutation of the epistle. And Timothy was consistently mentioned in the opening salutations of Paul's epistles whenever they were together where other people were not. We will establish that Titus is present with Paul when this epistle is written. Titus isn't mentioned in the salutation. Timothy is, right in the opening verses. And that's often the case. That's the case later in some of Paul's epistles written in captivity in Rome when Luke is with him. But Luke's not mentioned in the salutations, but Timothy is. I believe Paul did that because Paul was designating Timothy as his... uh, successor in a manner identifying Timothy with his own ministry. Paul saw Timothy as his replacement successor, not not the second pope, because Paul was not a pope, but expected Timothy to, expected the assemblies to turn to Timothy when Paul was no longer around. Of course, we do not know the history of Timothy really after the um, death of Paul, especially not from Scripture. Maybe there are mentions in the early church fathers that I'm not aware of. So we don't know how long Timothy was able to carry that. But I believe that's why Paul often included Timothy in his salutations whenever they were together. Here Paul asked the Corinthians to make room in their hearts for himself 
and for Timothy, as they had professed having space for the Corinthians in their own hearts, where Paul had said in chapter 6, our mouths had been opened to you, Corinthians, our hearts enlarged. Paul further insists that they themselves had not caused this simply a trouble, nor had the hate defrauded or shortchanged them. Apparently, this is because upon their troubles and the divisions within the assembly as to how to handle the incident of the fornicator, they insisted that Paul had, would come to them, and he refused, having written his instructions to them instead, which is why we have 1 Corinthians. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19, now concerning my not coming to you, some had been indignant, but I will come to you soon if the prince wishes. Verse 3, I do not speak for condemnation, for I have said before that you are in our hearts, for which to die together and to live together. We do not have the very first epistle which Paul had written to the Corinthians, which is lost. But where we learn of it, we learn of it where Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So that first and now missing epistle to the Corinthians may have been where Paul had first told them in response to this problem that he would not come to them. There in that epistle, he may also have made such a commitment of his life to them as he describes here. However, in several places in both of his surviving epistles to the Corinthians, Paul had spoken of a disregard for death in relation to his commitment to the ministry of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or society, or life or death, or present or future, all is yours, but you of Christ, an anointed of God. It was in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that he had written, for I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. So Paul had that commitment consistently voiced in his epistles to the Corinthians. What he's actually speaking about here may have been in that very first letter, which is now missing. This epistle should be three Corinthians. At least there may have been even others besides those. Great to me is openness towards you. Great to me is a reason to boast and you. I am filled with encouragement. I overflow in joy at all of our tribulation. Paul's openness, his speaking freely and honestly to the assembly of Corinth is very important to him. 
In the opening chapter of this epistle, Paul had explained that his own good conduct and his honest transmission of the gospel of Christ was his reason to boast, where he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 12, Therefore this is our, his intimities, right? Therefore this is our reason to boast. The testimony of our conscience that in sanctity and sincerity of Yahweh, and not with fleshly wisdom, but with the favor of Yahweh, we have had our dwelling in the society, and more extraordinarily, in reference to you, meaning his dealings with the Corinthians. Concerning Paul's joy in the face of tribulation, he had said in Romans chapter 5, which was written several months after this very epistle, therefore, having been deemed worthy from out of faith, we have peace before Yahweh through our Prince Yahshua Christ, through whom we also have access by faith to this favor in which we are established, and we boast in expectation of the honor of Yahweh. And not only, but we should also boast in afflictions, knowing that the affliction results in endurance. And the endurance in a tried character, and the tried character in an expectation. And the expectation does not disgrace, because the love of Yahweh has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. Indeed, when we were feeble, Christ at the appointed time died for the impious. So from our tribulation, we have joy because we understand that our God is trying our character and we do our best to face tribulation. For we indeed, going into Macedonia, had not any relaxation of our flesh, but in every way being afflicted, battles from without, fears from within. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul had stated that he would stay in Ephesus until the Pentecost, the Pentecost, ostensibly, of 56 A.D. But because of the trouble with the silversmiths, and Paul's seemingly hasty departure from Ephesus, we do not know if he was indeed able to remain there that long. We only read at the opening of Acts chapter 20, and after the uproar was ceased, that's the trouble with the silversmiths in Acts 19, Paul had called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed to go into Macedonia. By this time, he had already written the epistle which we know as 1 Corinthians because he said he was planning on staying in Ephesus until the Pentecost. Writing that epistle, Paul had also planned on wintering in Corinth at the end of that same year. So he had planned on spending at least seven months between leaving Ephesus and arriving in Corinth. Paul planned on that. 
And because of the divisions within the assembly in Corinth, the degree his visit, which we have seen Paul explain in the opening chapter of this second epistle to them. Then we read in the subsequent verses of Acts chapter 20, and when he had gone over those parts, meaning Macedonia, and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, and there abode three months. Leaving Ephesus, Paul had stopped in the Troad and route to Macedonia, something which is not recorded by Luke. We learn from verse 6 of Acts chapter 20 that Luke was not with Paul during his time in Ephesus and his travels in Greece. So in that chapter, Luke was only summarizing a second-hand report of Paul's travels. Because Luke is not with Paul until he states that he met him sailing from Philippi in Acts chapter 20, verse 6. When Paul had left Ephesus and arrived in the Troad, he had hoped to find Titus there. This is the context of the epistle to Titus. As we can see from his explanation in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul said, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. But taking leave of them, I went from there into Macedonia. While Paul was in the Troad, it seems that he must have found out where he could reach Titus, since he wrote his epistle to Titus either at this time or some short time later while he was in Macedonia. And he said in Titus chapter 3, When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me, to Nicopolis, for I have determined to to winter there. So this is where we learn that even though before he had left Ephesus, Paul had planned on wintering in Corinth, as he says in 1 Corinthians 16.6, after he had left Ephesus and before writing Titus, he decided to winter in Nicopolis instead, Titus 3.12. We also see from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that Paul had not yet arrived in Nicopolis when he had written to Titus. Otherwise, it would already be winter, and Titus would have a hard time getting to Nicopolis. There was one other surviving epistle, which was written after Paul had left Ephesus and before he arrived in Nicopolis. And that is the epistle known to us as 1 Timothy. This is evident. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, where we read in verse 3, Just as I traveling into Macedonia, had summoned you to remain in Ephesus, that you should command some not to teach errors, nor give heed to myths and endless genealogies, 
which afford disputes rather than management of the family of Yahweh, which is by faith. Then, a few months later, writing this second epistle to the Corinthians the following winter, January and February of the year that we would call 57 AD, Timothy is once again found to be with Paul. So Paul left him behind in Ephesus. Timothy caught up with Paul in Decapolis. And this must have been at least seven or eight months after the Pentecost, which Paul had hoped originally to spend in Ephesus, depending on the date of Passover that year, 56 AD. It had to be seven or eight months later. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus after the trouble with the silversmiths. Then he wrote both Titus and one Timothy as he traveled from the Troad and through Macedonia and route to Nicopolis. And then when Paul reached Nicopolis, Timothy as well as Titus had joined him in Nicopolis, where he wintered and wrote this second epistle to the Corinthians. In that same chapter of 1 Timothy, after exhorting Timothy to abide in the faith, Paul had said in verse 19, speaking of that faith, which refusing to accept some have been shipwrecked in regard to the faith, of which are Humenius and Alexandrus, whom I have delivered to the adversary, or to Satan, in order that they would be disciplined not to blaspheme. Paul went on in that epistle to give Timothy detailed instructions as to the organization and the quality of leaders which a Christian assembly should have. In its final chapter, he gave some examples of things which could cause problems within the Christian assembly, especially relating to the love of money and the corruption of leaders who are caught up in the lust for riches. So it seems that the only clue as to what those troubles were, which Paul had in Macedonia, where here he said that going there, he was in every way being afflicted, battles from without and fears from within. The only clues are found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he had mentioned having problems with Humenius and Alexandros. From this we may imagine that Paul had to persuade at least certain of the assemblies of Macedonia to put these men out of their congregations, delivering them to Satan, which must be the much exhortation which was mentioned by Luke in Acts chapter 20, verse 2. Perhaps these men were even leaders of one or more of those assemblies. As a digression, Luke had written in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, that Paul had spent three months in Greece at this time. 
wintering in Nicopolis, which is in Epirus in Greece, and about 180 miles from Corinth by the shortest route, if a ferry could be utilized to cross the Gulf of Patras, and if not, the trip would be by land about 290 miles. These three months must have included a typical Roman winter of two months in January and February of 57, during which travel, especially by sea, travel was difficult, and during which time this epistle, known as 2 Corinthians, was written. And then the three months must have included Paul's final visit to Corinth in the course of the third month. At the end of March, after visiting Corinth, Paul must have traveled back through Macedonia to the Troad, as Luke explains in Acts chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. Once he arrived in the Troad, it was most likely at that time that the epistle to the Romans was written. After mentioning the troubles he faced in Macedonia, Paul must be referring to the arrival of Titus while already in Nicopolis. So we have in verse 6 here. But he who encourages those who are humbled has encouraged us, Yahweh, in the arrival of Titus. One can expect the comfort of God only if one is humble. And humility is submitting oneself to the law of God. From Psalm 119, from verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word has quickened me. The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not, not declined from thy law. I remembered thy judgments of old, O Yahweh, and have comforted myself. Horror has taken a hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Speaking of the proper Christian attitude towards the greater society, the Apostle James says in chapter 4 of his epistle, Adulterers, do you not know that the love of society is hatred for Yahweh? He, therefore, who would desire to be a friend of society, establishes himself as an enemy of Yahweh. Or do you suppose that vainly the scripture says, with envy yearns the spirit which dwells in us? But more greatly, he gives favor on which account it says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor to the humble. Therefore, subject yourselves to Yahweh, but stand against the false accuser, and he shall flee from you, or the devil. With this we should perceive that true humility is the subjecting of oneself to God. If all Christians sought to subject themselves to God, there would be little disagreement among Christians. Only then would the kingdom of heaven begin to materialize on earth. Here Paul describes the events which befell him in Macedonia as affliction. 
and the coming of Titus, bearing news of what had transpired in Corinth as a source of comfort in the face of that affliction. Where he says in verse 7, and not only in his arrival, but also in the encouragement with which he had been encouraged by you, relating to us your longing, your lamentation, your zeal on behalf of me. Consequently, for me to rejoice still more. Paul had not found Titus in the Troad, but he was able to write to him and ask him to join him for the winter in Nicopolis. From the salutation of this epistle, we see that Timothy had also joined Paul, ostensibly departing from Ephesus for that same winter in Nicopolis. From Nicopolis during the winter and just before Paul had gone to visit Corinth in March of 57 AD, he had first written the second epistle to the Corinthians for which both men were present. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see Paul describing the coming of Titus as he had requested in chapter 3 of his epistle to Titus. Here in this chapter, Paul explains that upon his arrival in Nicopolis, Titus had given him much encouragement concerning the Corinthians. With all of this, it is evident as to why Paul did not find Titus in the Troad as he had evidently expected. And that is because Titus had gone to Corinth. When Titus went to Nicopolis to meet Paul for the winter, he transmitted to him the encouragement by which he had been encouraged by you, meaning the Corinthians. We also see, mentioned here, your zeal on behalf of me. And therefore, it is evident that Paul must have had his critics among the Corinthians. We saw Paul explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 certain things in relation to his own ministry, where questions must have been asked of him in a letter from the Corinthians, and those some of those questions must have been critical of Paul. Therefore, Paul had responded by saying in 1 Corinthians 4.2, but furthermore, you must require with stewards that one is found faithful. Now, to me, it is in the least matter that by you I am examined, or in the days of mankind. But neither do I examine myself. Indeed, not one thing for myself Am I conscious? Although not in this have I been proven, but it is the prince who examines me. This predicament is also evident once again later in this epistle, as in chapter 10, where Paul seems to infer that the Corinthians had been adversely affected by others, and where, among other things, he says in one, two, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, 
Paul says, For we do not venture to rank or compare ourselves with any of those who are recommending themselves. Rather, these, measuring themselves with themselves and comparing themselves with themselves, do not understand. So there were other people in Corinth who were trying to undermine Paul's ministry. We see that in the questions that Paul must have been confronted with in the epistle in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we see it later here in this epistle. And Paul says, your zeal on behalf of me, because the Corinthians must have defended Paul before his critics. Later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we shall see that Titus returns to Corinth ahead of Paul, which was certainly in late February or very early March of 57 AD, to deliver this second epistle to the Corinthians before Paul himself finally arrives there. But first, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul once again revisits the grief the assembly had at Corinth with his first epistle in verse 8. Because if then I had grieved you with the letter, I do not regret it, even though I had regretted it, for I see that that letter, even if for a while, had grieved you. And that last clause may have been written in English as a parenthetical statement. Paul was saddened to put his fellow Christians at Corinth in a position which grieved them, which was ostensibly when he had instructed them to put the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 out of their assembly. However, from, one, from chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, it is evident that there were other problems as well, since the assembly had taken to sectarianism by making themselves followers of men rather than followers of Christ, even if those men were the apostles themselves. As Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christians must first choose to please Yahweh their God. And that means submitting themselves to the law of God, regardless of the effect which that has on their relationships with man. If one accepts a sodomite or a fornicator so as to have peace with man, then one is accepting the sin of that person and becomes a party to that sin. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, such as these who knowing the judgments of Yahweh, that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those committing them. Therefore, the law of God can cause us grief, but ultimately, Christians must choose God and his law over man and the rewards for doing that are eternal, even if men have grief here, which is temporary. Now I rejoice, verse 9, not because you have been grieved, 
rather because you have been grieved into repentance, for you have been grieved by Yahweh, in order that in nothing have you been damaged by us. For that grief which is by Yahweh accomplishes repentance for preservation, not to be regretted. But the grief of the society accomplishes death. Paul simply instructed the Corinthians on what the word of God insists for the situation which they were in, and that the wicked must be put out of the congregation, and that the assembly not be divided against itself for the benefit of any particular individual. It is manifest that the assembly was quite divided in this matter, and they evidently repented upon Paul's admonitions, not only concerning the fornicator, but in regards to the divisions within the assembly and the other related problems which they had, all of which were treated by Paul in the first six chapters of his first epistle to the Corinthians. Now, at greater length, Paul insists that it was not his words which caused them grief, but God's law. And the repentance which they achieved was in choosing to follow the law by which the assembly would find preservation. Paul is therefore commending them for choosing to do what was right by the gospel of Christ. Next, he talks about the problems resulting when the entire assembly does not at first seek to follow the law. Therefore, behold, this same thing, that by Yahweh you are to have been grieved, at what price has it cultivated diligence in you but an explanation, but irritation, but fear, but longing, but jealousy, but an avenging. In each, you yourselves have continued to be pure in the matter. Why? Because they chose to follow the law. While we do not have the letters which the Corinthians themselves had written to Paul, I wish we did, and there were at least two of those, here we see that the price that the assembly had paid for being divided and not at least initially, following the law of God, included such things as irritation, fear, jealousy, and possibly even the vengeance of man. We can determine that this is true because in 1 Corinthians, after admonishing them as to what to do with the fornicator in chapter 5 of that epistle, Paul also admonished them for their apparent inability to set one another to judge matters within the assembly without turning to the worldly courts of the ungodly in chapter 6 of that epistle. As for vengeance here, as for an avenging, we say possibly the vengeance of men here because it is also plausible in verse 11 here, that by using the Greek word ek 
the cases. Strong's number 1557. 1557. Ek In using that word in verse 11, Paul may have meant vindication and not vengeance. The word bears either meaning, but the context here is difficult to determine without more more precise knowledge of the trials which the assembly in Corinth had suffered because of this matter. We can only take a translation so far without understanding the context of what lies behind it. And this is one of those instances. So Paul may have said, but fear, but longing, but jealousy, but a vindication. The word bears either meaning. <clears throat> Therefore, Paul may have been using the word to describe the steps which the assembly had taken leading to their own vindication in the matter against those who remained divided. And as Paul says here in one Corinthians, I'm sorry, in two Corinthians chapter ten, those who had been boasting in others' troubles. So there's an something going on in the background here in Corinth where there are people who have attempted to undermine Paul's ministry to the Corinthians and to corrupt the assembly itself. In 1 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, Paul had written of these men who had inflated themselves and were boasting in reference to the problem of the fornicator. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had endorsed those people whom he is addressing at the assembly of Corinth, where he says of them that you should hold up against those boasting in appearance and not in heart. Boasting is a topic once again later in this epistle in chapters 10 through 12, where Paul seems to be addressing a sect that may still be in opposition in Corinth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 from verse 14, for not as if reaching to you do we overextend ourselves. Indeed, as far as you, we also came before with the good message of the anointed, not in regard to things without measure, boasting in others' troubles, but having hope, increasing your faith, with you to be magnified in accordance with our standard for abundance, to announce the good message to those beyond you, not ready to boast by another's standard for things, but he who is boasting in Yahweh he must boast. For it is not he who is recommending himself who is the person approved, but he whom the prince recommends. Then in chapter 11, Paul addresses certain false apostles. And in that, we may see an even deeper reason than what has so far been apparent for some of the problems among the Corinthians. And Paul is apparently commending them here for choosing the right route and resolving those problems, at least to a great extent. The greater number of Christians in the assembly at Corinth must have been grieved and also exhorted to diligence by Paul's first epistle. And while Paul had to delay visiting Corinth, 
because he wanted the assembly to first work out its own problems, they must have continued in the gospel and chosen the proper course of action for Paul to be commending them here where he tells them, in each, you yourselves have continued to be pure in the matter. Then in verse 12, next then, I had written to you not for the sake of he who had been doing wrong, nor for the sake of he who had been wronged, but for the sake of making manifest your diligence, which is on our behalf to you before Yahweh. In regards to the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote, quoting the law, to see if the Corinthians would keep the law. However, the sinner, in the interim, must have repented of his misdeeds because rather than following the law requiring the Corinthians to put the sinner out of their midst, they had decided instead to choose the law of mercy and forgiveness in Christ. In any event, Paul commends them for their willingness to keep the law, as Christ himself had quoted in Hosea chapter 6, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Verse 13. On this account, we have been encouraged, and upon our encouragement still more abundantly, we have rejoiced in the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. It seems that Timothy had delivered the first epistle to the Corinthians. We learn that in 1 Corinthians 4.17, while Paul was still in Ephesus, and then had returned to Ephesus before Paul had departed from there, which we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 3. We do not know why Titus had gone to Ephesus, but he must have done so even though Paul I'm sorry, we do not know why Titus had gone to Corinth, but he must have done so even though Paul had hoped to find him in the Troad. As he also explained here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in any event, we see that Titus was in Corinth and came to Paul in Nicopolis. That Paul received a good report from him concerning the Corinthians and that Paul shall send him back to Corinth with this very epistle. In Acts chapter 18, in verse 7, after Paul arrives in Corinth to preach the gospel there for the first time, and he is rejected in the assembly hall of the Judeans, we read, and we're moving from there, he went into a house of someone named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of Yahweh, whose house was abutting, meaning it was right next to the assembly hall. Here we see the name Titius Eustace, and some ancient manuscripts have Titus Eustace, where the King James Version has only the anglicized justice, which is Eustace in English letters. However, the oldest of the great uncial manuscripts have either Titius or Titus justice. And it is very likely that in Acts 18.7,
we have this same Titus, who from that point is often seen in the company of Paul. Therefore, we estimate that it would be natural for Titus to be in Corinth, having had a prior connection with the place. Verse 14, because if to him, meaning Titus, I had boasted anything concerning you, I have not been disgraced, but as we have spoken all things in truth to you, in that manner also, our reason to boast to Titus had become truth. And another reason to boast to Titus is because he himself was a Corinthian. Paul had plenty of opportunity to speak well to Titus of the Corinthians for that reason. And it is now perhaps six years since Paul had first begun his ministry in Corinth, which evidently started around 51 AD. And exceedingly, verse 15, and exceedingly are his inward affections for you, remembering the obedience of you all, how you had received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because in everything I have confidence in you. And that word splanknon, Strong's 46.28, which is usually translated literally as bowels in the King James Version, where the Christian New Testament has affections, the word is literally the inward parts, but here in this verse, the King James agrees and translates it as inward affection. Paul rejoices because evidently in their letter responding to what he had written them in 1 Corinthians and according to the report of Titus, the Corinthians had chosen to follow God and not those men who were inflating themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This concludes our presentation of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Yahweh willing, we will return with chapter 8 of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians on April 24th. We will be here on April 17th. I just don't know yet what I'm going to talk about. We will be on the road in Naples, Florida. On Saturday, the 18th, we will have as a guest a good Australian friend and brother, Brett Light, from ExpelledParasite.com and the Daily Stormer. Tomorrow night, German Origins, Part 4. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening.